What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, our first quarantine show coming to you from the podcast basement all quarantined up. It has been a bit of a road getting here, to be honest. Um, we've had to, uh, like everybody else, adapt a little bit. We've got all kinds of new equipment and gadgets running and and uh, and my producer is, uh, is not even here. He's, uh, he's helping me out remotely. Christian is doing a, an amazing job helping me set this up. So thank you again to Christian Summers, our intrepid producer here at Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. And we are back in a slightly weird format for what we are calling the first of the quarantinis. Um, so I have a lovely uh, gin martini here. Oh, and it is on fire. Um, I also have a uh, coffee chocolate cupcake with um, a uh, coffee buttercream uh, right here. Look at this thing. Wow. Mm. The joys of uh, working from home right there. Mm. Woo. So look, we um, have this new shout new setup. We've got um, plenty of new shows coming at you. Uh, you can stay up to date. Follow us on, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And the podcast available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Um, and our guest today is going to be Mr. Scott Iper from Nature for You. He's a herpetologist, uh, naturalist, author, and uh, uh, has written multiple books on venomous creatures, snakes, frogs, and more. Uh, along with his partner Ty, he operates Nature for You from uh, here in Brisbane. Uh, they're a wildlife education and consulting company operating throughout Queensland and throughout Australia. You can find them on Facebook at Wildlife Demonstrations or at wildlifedemonstrations.com. We're going to get him in now if technology is willing. Let's see. Hello. Oh, hello. How's it going? Good, Scott. Hi, thanks for joining us, man. How are you? Good, mate. Excellent. Great to finally have you on. I know we've had some... Um, teething problems, but I think uh, everybody's learning to uh, pivot and uh, adapt a little bit these days. How are you doing uh, with uh, all of this mayhem? Um, good, mate. Uh, I suppose the, the one thing with this this uh, self-isolating and stuff like that, I mean, we're both essential workers, so we're still out and about a little bit, but we're minimising the amount of interaction that we need to do. That being said, though, we've also, we're trying to minimise our our interactions with our venomous snakes as well at home. So obviously doing anything that needs to be done, routine husbandry and all that sort of stuff still needs to get, needs to happen, but we're avoiding taking photos and and the the non-essential items, I suppose. It's a good thing that's coming down into winter. So coming down into winter means that we're less feeding and uh, all that sort of stuff as well. So from our points, it's something to keep in mind and certainly depending on where we're at in, in a few months' time, will depend on uh, what we're doing with regards to breeding this year as well because essentially you want to minimise non-essential -inter non interaction with these things. Hospital waiting rooms and, and hospital resources are, are going to be few and far between if the if the curve uh, has a, a secondary peak, I suppose. Um, obviously, it's flattened out now a fair bit, but if it does have a secondary peak, we don't want to be burdening uh, emergency boards or anything like that with snake bite wherever we don't need. Well, yeah, that's something that you and I discussed, uh, I think, already previously, right? Like um, the issues with, uh, you know, respiratory distress from venom-induced consumption, coagulopathy, and all of the other things. Uh, no, nobody wants to be on a respirator at the best of times for snake bite in particular. But this would really be a terrible time to um, to be admitted to hospital for a snake bite for something that, that was, I mean, most snake bites are generally avoidable, right? So... Um, there's no reason to not have that little bit of extra caution, particularly with everything that's going on, right? 
Well, it's just it's it's all about risk minimisation, and at the end of the day, you know, you're you're young. I'm reasonably young. The chances of us being getting sick from from COVID nineteen are are probably pretty slim. But however, we could be carrying it. We pass it on to somebody else that isn't in in the boat that we're in, and then suddenly they have some really serious symptoms. Um, we all we all know people that have depressed immune systems for whatever reason. It could be medical reasons. It could be age. It could be all sorts of things that that uh, that hit at it and. You know, we don't need to be carrying that stuff around where we don't need to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, uh, as you mentioned, you know, both of us are still doing the snake removal thing where needed um, as, you know, essential workers as we've been classed. But having to put in a lot of extra PPE, a lot of extra precautions, asking our clients a lot of questions, <laughs> slightly invasive questions about their uh, current medical history and their travel history over the last 14 days and things like that. Uh, and uh, I, I guess I, I know that you know you guys have also been affected uh, by this whole thing. You, you guys had some some pretty big travel plans with yourself and your partner Ty, your co-author as well, and your um, your um, amazing partner there at Nature for You, who does a lot of the husbandry and feeding work with you there as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I hear you guys had a bit of a book tour planned there. Uh, yeah, we're meant to be touching down in LA as of about twenty minutes ago. <laughs> oh wow i had no idea that that was uh that was that was that was like literally today we got an email from, from the flight people saying make sure you don't miss your flight that was a day and a half ago <laughs> um, and yeah i was looking at on stalkbook earlier today and one of my mates over there had been out chasing red diamondback rattlesnakes and i'm sort of sitting there thinking to myself yeah that could have been us um actually going to be staying with him as well so it's it's pretty shitty but what do you know and uh and you guys were going over there for uh, a reptile conference because of uh was it uh i believe it was this one uh yeah so we were doing a uh we were doing a i was actually doing a talk on on varanids in captivity and also a talk on um on blue tongues in captivity and it was to do with how we have changed our husbandry style due to the seeing these animals in the in the wild. So I've seen all the blue tongues in the wild, bar uh, a couple of the Indonesian ones and um, Adelaide blueies, and I've seen oh, about eighteen species of monitor in in the wild as well. So because I've seen a swag of sort of both of them, and I mean you've seen our pits at home and stuff like that, we have changed a lot of our systems around to suit. Um, natural behaviours and, and stuff that we've seen from the wild. So. What, what what are some of the examples of that? I, I know that even with your um, terrestrial lapids, I see you guys putting in a lot of like arboreal hides or like, well, not arboreal, but elevated and, and, and just, I guess, more enriched uh, environments for even something that somebody would consider maybe a terrestrial lapid, like Eastern Brown, which is like, uh, we also, you know, brown snakes don't, particularly climb but then you occasionally do see them follow a rodent up a tree or you find them under some bark on like an old uke or something like that like yeah they're, they're, they're perfectly capable climbers but um what other than like uh i guess you know a little bit of extra height is, is something that you've added for the monitors um so with all husbandry with all our reptile husbandry we, we've taken the idea that we can always do better regardless of whatever you've done you can always improve on it now Reptiles are a lot more switched on than what people realise and they can do a lot more and they, they pick up on a lot more than what people tend to realise as well. They're not these brain-dead animals that are just sitting there in, in an enclosure wasting away their time. 
So in the 70s and 80s, there was a big push for zoos and stuff like that to change the management of their captive mammals and include enrichment as part of the essential husbandry techniques, I suppose. So it's not only is it food, water, cleanliness, appropriate temperature, um, appropriate size enclosures, but it's also important to enrich that enclosure and give the animals something to do. And And they've shown that there's elevated uh, instances of brain activity, which is sort of a suggestion that the, the mental health of the animal is probably better being enriched. So there's a couple of things that we do. We move shed skins around in the enclosures. So what we'll do is we'll take a, a shed skin from, say, a taipan and throw it in with a mulga snake. And the mulga snake gets all excited because it's now got this fresh scent of something that it's not used to smelling in its enclosure. We'll use different hide boxes and move the hide boxes amongst the different enclosures so there's different smells. That's an amazing bit of aromatherapy. Yeah, it's a very different piece of aromatherapy. So, you know, by putting a mulga snake skin into the skin into a cage of a brown snake, you've now added a predator smell into that enclosure, which causes the brown snake to 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 behave a little bit differently. Don't leave it in there the whole time, but then we take it back out again. When we're introducing food into the enclosure, we drag the food around inside the enclosure before leaving it in a, in a spot. The reason we do that is we're not trying to actually initiate a, an excited food response, but we're trying to get that animal as it's moving around in the enclosure to hit that scent trail and then follow that scent trail uh, to the prey item. So like natural tracking response. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, and then we'll also try things like leaf litter every now and then. The arboreal hides is something that we put into a lot of our enclosures to, to, to provide them something different. So not only does it mean that they're just moving around on the ground, but they've got to pull themselves up and sit into something a little bit different. It's quite tight for most of the animals that we have them in, and they can actually get on top of it as well. And so you've got like a crevice on the top, and then you've got the tube itself. And so you've got a little bit of difference there for the animals. Initially, we found it was really good for the pythons, but we ended up putting it in all the elapid enclosures as well. And you know, it's, it's quite unusual, but you do see red, red bellies sitting up, curled up in them. You see taipans curled up in them, brown snakes curled up in them. They use them. And so the, the whole idea of that is that if, if that's an improvement, then, hey, why not? With regards to the monitors, we put, again, elevated hides and stuff like that inside the enclosures. Outside, we've done that as well. We've got enclosures that have got hide boxes below the ground level. So that way, they, they're sort of burrowing down and into things. We will put snake sheds into the goanna enclosures. We'll get blue tongue feces and rub that through the ground and stuff like that. Really important with things like parentes because parentes' main diet in the wild is blue tongues. So by putting in some blue tongue scents into the uh, parenti enclosures, you'll get lots of digging activity and you'll get lots of different behaviours. With Easter, I know it seemed like a bit of a joke, but we, we got some eggs and the eggs we actually dyed with some food dye into the enclosure. Completely different thing for a, a round, rolling around uh, bird egg for the parenti to sort of tackle. And so it's trying to pick them up and it's slipping in its jaws and all the rest of it. But that that presented a, a different challenge for that lizard. Obviously they, they get eggs in the wild, so that's something different. The other thing we try to do as well, you guys ever seen um, the Kongs? That you use for dogs? Yeah, yeah. The uh, chewable toy that you can uh, insert treats or, or, you know, peanut butter or, or stuff in. And they're used for uh, fairly um, highly powerful jawed 
dogs in general. It's 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 a fairly tough tough material. So we'll get pinky mice, dead pinky mice, and we'll stick a couple of dead pinky mice inside the inside the Kong, and we'll put that in with things like our yellow spotted monitor or something like that. And the Kong itself is bigger than the than the yellow spotted monitor's head, so there's no way it could get uh, it could get that out of there. But it spends a good couple of hours trying to figure out a way of getting those those pink mice out of that Kong. Um, so again, it's something different. It's something. It's a different challenge for the animal to sort of to crack onto. So if we can do something that makes it better, then why not? Super interesting, man. Um, and I guess a, a, a bit of a shame that you guys couldn't uh, go and present this. Obviously, overseas. Uh, uh, what was the What was the conference that you and Ty were uh, were going to? So it's a, a Herpeton conference. So basically, it's to do with captive um, captive management of reptiles. It's a, essentially a conference that's put together where they uh, people come along to it and then they sort of see some of the leaders in the industry from around the world uh, presenting on on reptile husbandry and amphibian husbandry. And the audience itself is made up by the speakers, but also by by paid participants, uh, by paid people that come along to it to. So to want to see what's going on on the cutting edge, I suppose. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I, I, I hope it gets rescheduled. Is there, is, is there plans for you guys to go back over there at some point? Yeah. So at the moment, it's everything's just been put on hold. So um, hopefully we'll know where it's at and, and get our flights booked again and, and go over. I want it to be around this time of year, though, because it's the herping's much better this time of year. Yeah, a little bit warmer, right? Is there, was there a few target species that you guys were hoping to find while you were over there? Yeah, anything that shakes its tail in defence. Yeah, so we were chasing rattlesnakes and healer monsters, and um, while we're over there too, we we're going to catch up with some uh, some captive collections over there as well, and hop around with cobras and and bushmasters and mambas and all sorts of stuff. So um, I'd already spoken to the um, uh, to one of the anti venom banks and stuff like that as well. And tried organising a membership and stuff like that, so that if something happened when I was helping around or something, um, then at least we'd be okay. So a little bit disappointing, but hey, it is what it is. We're both busy working away on another project at the moment. So until such time, we're, we're still very busy. So, so more publications uh, for, from you guys on the way. Yeah, there's another one happening right now. So awesome! So uh, at least keeping you guys both busy in the quarantine a little bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. All right, cool. Well, look, um, uh, we we actually have quite a few, uh, number of papers to get through, so um, we should probably jump into this. Um, uh, and the the first one's kind of interesting, right? Because uh, we uh, with all the uh, issues that we're currently experiencing with COVID nineteen, there's some discussions about like the. Uh, the safety of, of wet markets. And I know that at one point there was a, uh, and again, this is proven to be incorrect, but people thought that the, uh, the coronavirus uh, may have jumped from bats to snakes to people. Yeah. But that was obviously proven uh, incorrect. Um, it was uh, looking at a percentage simple similarity of the ACE spike protein, uh, not the whole genome. And, and even then there was a, a very low percentage similarity compared to what you actually need to find the, the true um, host virus uh, reservoir so definitely not from snakes but there might be other potential issues with with eating snakes not necessarily a great idea uh it turns out and uh we will just jump into let me see if i can pull this up here this is a bear with us guys we're we're, we're muddling our way through here but we're going to pull up our first paper right here 
So this is from Letouf et al. from 2020. Uh, science of the total environment. Toxic time bombs. Frequent detection of anticoagulant rodenticides in urban reptiles at multiple trophic levels. Interesting paper from the um, the folks down there at Curtin University in uh, in Perth. Uh, they, they they do some amazing uh, reptile work over there in the um, southwest corner. Uh, so uh, straight on to the abs- uh, abstract. Anticoagulant rodenticides are regularly used around the world to control pest mammals. Second generation anticoagulant rodenticides are highly persistent in biological tissue and have a high potential for bioaccumulation and biomagnification. Consequently, exposure and poisoning of non-target organisms has been frequently documented, especially in countries with unregulated AR sales and usage. Most of this research has focused on rodent predators, usually raptors and predatory mammals, although exposure has been documented in invertebrates and insectivorous fauna. Few studies have explored non-target exposure in reptiles, despite species sharing similar trophic positions and dietary preferences to other exposed fauna. We test three abundant urban reptiles in Perth, WA, that differ in diet and trophic uh, tiers for multiple AR exposure. The Jugite, uh, Pseudonar affinis, uh, which is a rodent predator. The Bobtail, Tiliqua rugosa, uh, which is an omnivore. Uh, the Tiger Snake, Notechus scutatus occidentalis, uh, which is a frog predator. We found frequent exposure in all three species, 91% in dugats, 60% in bobtails, 45% in tiger snakes. Uh, mean combined liver concentrations of ARs of exposed individuals were 0.178 milligrams per kilogram in dugats, 0.40 in bobtails, uh, 0.009 in tiger snakes. High exposure frequency and liver concentrations were expected for the dugite, obviously being a rodent predator, right? Uh, exposure in the other species is more surprising and implies widespread AR contamination of the food web. We discussed the likelihood of global AR exposure of urban reptiles, highlight the potential for reptiles to be important vectors of AR in the food web, and highlight implications for humans consuming wild reptiles. Scott, uh, first thoughts, mate. Very interesting and somewhat scary paper in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I suppose the the concern is is that um, how far those AR uh, those ARs are sort of travel through the food web. In that you know species such as as tiger snakes that don't eat a hell of a lot of rodents are having these these rodenticides sitting in their bodies. It's interesting how the the paper postulates that it could be from essentially that it might be getting through frogs and getting and the frogs are picking it up through their skin and then uh, the snakes eat the frogs and then the frogs are then um, then they're getting that that those ARs then it, it's certainly a, a, a an interesting thing the 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 concern is how long in reptiles that these um, that these ARs can sort of persist in comparison to to, to mammals where they tend to move out fairly quickly in reptiles that seem to stay a very long time. Yeah, um, and uh, th- that was quite interesting. I, I think they had the reference to lava lizards on the Galapagos Islands where they um, uh, they baited for rodents on the islands and uh, a number of native birds got poisoned, but uh, there was also a number of lizards that showed toxicity for, was it like over 400 days? Um, at 800 days post-baiting, uh, liver concentrations between 0.001 and 0.2 milligrams at 800 days post-baiting. Yeah, and those liver concentrations were high enough that they would potentially be of risk to something eating those lizards. Yeah, so I, th- I think the the point, point 0.1 of a milligram per kilo was shown to be toxic in, in, in mammals and birds, um, depending on, obviously, depending on the taxa. And so these are... These lizards, 800 days post-baiting, can have up to 0.2 milligrams per kilo 
uh, sitting in their livers. So that's some that's some pretty crazy sort of toxicity. 800 days post-biting, they're effectively become poisonous, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it is interesting, right? Like, so uh, 91% of gigites, which are largely a rodent predator, uh, I guess in urban areas, you would expect there to be some occasional accidental um, filtering in of rodenticides, but 91% is just so high. And then you've got the tiger snakes, which were still at 45%, which uh, I, I guess the question is, is that happening from the di- the diet of tiger snakes, which we think is generally more amphibian based, but there's got to be the occasional rodent thrown in there, right? Like w- we all know tiger snakes to be slightly gutsy, gutsy eaters. <laughs> they'll, they'll eat a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of tigers do eat a lot of, lot of frogs. Um, their frogs sort of are their main diet, but... They they are opportunistic. I suppose too. It depends on the on the location. You know, if you go on some of those islands, tiger snakes are mainly bird feeders. So, you know, they are they are very opportunistic. The the one thing that I did find interesting is that they they stated that predation on larger larger snakes is likely to be rare, especially in urban environments. The one thing that does predate on large snakes is larger snakes. Certainly, jugites and mulga snakes and stuff like that are more than happy to to eat smaller jugites and, and things like tiger snakes when they come into contact with them. So potentially that's another route, uh, another route of ARs getting into the jugites. Could have been from from tiger snakes and bobtails they actually consume. Yeah, right. So from snakes eating snakes and those snakes having eaten the uh, ARs themselves. And uh, so the the other thing about their slow passage, uh, obviously this makes a, a fair bit of sense in reptiles. Um, they have a a little bit of a slower metabolism and a little bit of a slower rate of passing waste. They don't, um, uh, and uh, these are anticoagulant rodenticides generally excreted out of the body through the feces. So if you're not dropping a lot of fecal matter, you're going to retain those, uh, those uh, rodenticides a lot longer. So reptiles actually make a, a fairly good way for those kind of rodenticides to kind of spread even further, right? Like you got to think of maybe some of the native predatory birds of tawny frogmouths, owls, things like that, which feed on our native snake fauna are now going to be picking up potentially dangerous amounts of anticoagulant rodenticides. So I suppose the one thing that is uh, uh, I suppose something that I don't really know too much about is that where is it, where are these um, these rodenticides being uh, concentrated in the body? Is it only in the liver or is it going throughout the tissue? I don't know. Um, I, I, I think you get the higher concentrations in the liver. So, uh, but I mean, that, that makes sense for something that's uh, an organ that's trying to you know, filter out all the toxins. Trying to filter it out. So, so I suppose where I'm going with that is that... Or, or, or whether it you know, absorbs into fatty tissues or something. Like that. And that's the thing. So if, it, if it's sitting in the fatty tissues, which is distributed basically essentially throughout the body, then the concern potentially is that if a, a dew guide or a tiger snake gets hit by a car, not only do you have the, the larger uh, larger carrion feeders, but then you've also got the insects and stuff like that that are feeding on that carrion. Those insects get eaten by other lizards, smaller birds, insectivorous birds. It, it really shows how it can be distributed throughout the, the food web. In addition to that, it may not necessarily kill them, but it may make them feel sick. If they feel sick, then... Are they able to get away from a car in time? Are they able to get away from a cat? Are they able to get away from a fox? So you could get increased predation through lethargy, through sickness, I suppose. 
uh, due to this as well. I, th- I think that was one of the things they considered as well. Is like, are they getting a higher rate of sampling of snakes that have higher rodenticide rates in them just because those animals are more likely to be picked up in their study because they're less mobile, more likely to get picked up by wildlife carers, more likely to be injured. So that in itself might be impacting the the, the sampling of the study, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I would think that, you know, the, the amount of snakes that, that Damien in particular, the amount of tiger snakes that Damien has caught uh, through his his work on tiger snakes in, in the Perth region, you would think if anyone was going to be able to gauge if the animals were were lethargic and and that the that the animals he collected were basically because they were they were a bit dopey from this this higher AR concentration, uh, then he would be the one to be able to know that. But um, you know, put that caveat in there. Well, I mean, there's even the idea of maybe like maybe like behavioral fever, right? Like uh, some of them are more likely to be out and exposed to try to, you know, bring their temperature up to try to deal with um, whatever toxicity is going on or something like that. Well, I mean, you, you know that reptiles um, immune systems are, is better functional, is more functional at, at the, the closer they are at to their ideal temperature. Yeah. If the animal's a bit cold, it's going to be a bit slow, but if it's, if it's in trying to, to bask earlier, or bask for longer to maintain that higher temperature all the way through, then then yeah, potentially that could be a, a factor. Yeah, interesting. Let me see if I can um, pull this up again, and we'll just jump down to the conclusion briefly. Great study, um, and uh, you know, very very interesting. You can see the uh, kind of concentrations are, uh, here in the graph. You can see some of those black concentrations, on those black bars where you're getting some really high concentrations in kind of some of those urbanized areas. There you can kind of see overall rates of the three different species that were studied. So tiger snakes, not so much. Uh, Dugites definitely leading the charge right there. All right. So on to our conclusion. Uh, the study offers convincing evidence that urban reptiles of different trophic tiers and diet are exposed to residentially used ARs and suggest the surrounding food web is more contaminated than previously assumed. We predict a similar AR exposure in reptiles of the same ecological niche in cities where purchase of ARs are unrestricted and retail available. Based on their probable resistance to toxicity, low elimination rates, and multiple trophic positions, we consider reptiles in proximity to AR sources, i.e. urbanization, to be good indicators of food web contamination. Our data highlight a novel threat faced by reptile predators and humans consuming wild reptiles captured near human habitation, particularly if liver or fat tissues are consumed. And obviously some um, further suggestions for some further work. Uh, Interesting paper. Final thoughts? Yeah, I think that the conclusion in regards to uh, testing of uh, ARs in livers from reptiles sold in meat markets in Southeast Asia and also places like South America and, and Africa would definitely give people a, a, a better understanding of what they would also be potentially ingesting as well. Um, and, you know, obviously there's going to be health health risks and, and health problems associated with eating red anticides in humans as well, no doubt. Yeah, and I guess it also shows that, you know, uh, if you maybe look at cities with differential rates of anticoagulant red anticide production or use, you can probably look at the snake fauna in those areas and see if there's a, you know, a correlation to see how far into the environment those uh, rodenticides are spreading through the reptiles that are eating the rodents that are being targeted. Well, not only that, but also too where you've got, uh, where you do have seemingly 
a a slow decline in in predators in in a location. Um, it might be a way of uh, mammalian predators, let's just say, that do eat snakes and things like that. It might be a way of going to see if that is potentially one of the causes of that decline in those those sort of higher higher predators. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Interesting stuff. Great paper, but I think we do have to move on to our next one, uh, which is uh, going to be a good one. From Nagaville et al., uh, this is in uh, the journal Zoo Taxa, a new species of turtle-headed sea snake, Amidocephalus. Scott made sure I get that one right. Amidocephalus uh, elapidae. Uh, he was on my on my case about that one. And endemic to WA. Uh, this is from uh, Nagaville et al. We describe a new species of turtle-headed sea snake, Amidocephalus oriaris, uh, species nov from Elapid- uh, from uh, Western Australia in uh, the family Elapidae from the Coral Coast, Pilbara, and Kimberley regions. Phylogenetic analyses of mitochondrial markers place the new species as the sister lineage to the two currently recognized species of Amitocephalus E. annulatus from the Timor Reefs uh, and Coral Sea and E. Ijime from the Ryukyu Islands of Japan. Uh, analysis of nuclear SMP data from the new species and E. annulatus uh, from Australia and New Caledonia provides additional uh, independent evidence of their evolutionary distinctiveness. The new taxon is usually morphologically diagnosable from its congeners by a combination of scalation and color pattern characters and appears to be, uh, to reach greater total lengths uh, over one meter in the new species versus typically around 80 centimeters in Annulatus and Ijume. The new species is known largely from soft bottom trawl grounds, unlike E. Annulatus and Ijume, which usually inhabit coral reefs. Uh, the discovery of this new species brings the number of sea snakes endemic to WA to six. So uh, that's uh, a sixth uh, sea snakes at WA. Let's have a look at this guy because uh, 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 the Amidocephalus, uh, cool, uh, cool genus of snakes, right? Yeah, yeah, very interesting sea snakes. They're um, they're they're quite derived in that they've um, uh, they've they've evolved uh, to uh, to to specialise eating fish eggs, uh, and so one of the resultant um, one of the results in that is that they their venom apparatus and their venom has become uh, highly derived, and they haven't put as much effort into uh, into fangs and and venom glands i suppose so they've become much less toxic than their their close relatives it's an interesting evolutionary shift right because we we um as a snake people we we know of sea snakes as being highly highly toxic because their prey just has so many opportunities to escape basically in three dimensions um whereas you know uh, on the surface of the ground there's a, there's not quite as many options uh whereas a fish can swim up down left right into the coral reef under the sand and it's quite easy to lose any prey that you've invested venom into capturing so i think that's one of the reasons why we think there's a selective pressure for sea snakes to kind of evolve all of this uh amazing weaponry for for hunting and then you have the uh emidocephalus which eat caviar fish eggs generally scraping them off the coral reef you can kind of have a uh, if you can see the uh the lip here um on the uh whoop, go back to this uh beautiful picture you can see this uh this fused lip which uh in in most snakes is is multiple scales uh in this guy it's a big fused scraper and they have this weird downturned rostral scale at the front as well that rostral scale in the front there is only in the males that they have that uh, so there's a horn projection on the on the males and that's used in in reproduction yeah wow 
Well, I, I mean, you can definitely see all the changes that's going on uh, with with the head of these animals. Uh, you know, the parietal scales at the back behind the eye. You can, there's no big bulging venom glands or anything like that. And um, it, it, they're they're very interesting. You know, as soon as you stop chasing fish around and just eating fish eggs, you lose the need for all that venom, and it just um, it, it eventually mutates away. Literally, like there's um, I believe there was a study that showed that they're, they're some of the um, like three finger neurotoxin genes. Um, that are really active in some of our more potently venomous snakes have uh, a stop codon really, really early in the uh, in the gene. So instead of building the gene, you know, you would just get to a, a little signal that says stop, and all you're going to build is a little bit of useless amino acid. So that thing is probably, I, I imagine, the transcription factors for it now are, are even being kind of downregulated and switched off. So I think the other thing that's is really sort of to be noted as well when we're talking about the the, the scalation morphology. Is the the presence of these apical pits that are that are basically all over the head of the snake? Yeah, and uh, we can kind of see those here. Uh, I'm going to zoom in a bit more, but I believe you have a better photo as well. I was going to say, do we want to try and jump? I'll try and jump screens and we'll see what yeah, happens. Yeah, let's just have a quick look here. So you can see some of the spots here, but um, let's have a look at your um, Emetocephalus oryaris, if you don't mind. So I'm going to I'm going to pop out here. Bam! There we go. Okay. Let's see. Okay, so let's try this again. We're we're, we're getting very um, very technical here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hopefully we can see. Yeah. That. There we go. Look at that. Look at that beautiful thing. Wow. So a much darker individual as well. It it looks like its uh, eyes uh, maybe clouded over, like it's ready to shed, or is this a is this a preserved specimen? Let's let's zoom in on that because at the moment, um, all these tiny little specks here are apical pits. It's been postulated that uh, these apical pits might be actually be sensitive to pressure waves and things like that. And so that might actually help uh, the sea snakes be aware of predators and things like that that are approaching them, particularly where water is, is a bit murky. Uh, in the case of Emidocephalus, they tend to live on, on coral reefs and um, in the case of that new taxa, they, they live on seagrass beds. And so the water is, tends to be fairly clear. This particular animal that we're looking at here is a uh, Emidocephalus annulatus from uh, probably New Caledonia. You'll notice that this has got a separated uh, a separation between the first supralabial scale and the preocular. That separation is not usually present in Oriaris. So in Oriaris, uh, when we go back to your screen in a second, um, you'll notice that that separation is not there, and so. That's that's essentially that the morphological difference besides uh, obviously the uh, distributional differences and genetic differences between the two taxons. Right. So we'll we'll have a look at some of those genetic differences in the paper in a, in a moment. But um, yeah, keep that uh, keep that scalation in mind when we go back. We'll actually have a look at the uh, the diagram. Here we go. So you've got the annulatus up the top that we were just looking at on Scott's screen. And it's got this kind of configuration right here, up the top. And uh, the new species looks more like this, where the labial scale and the ocular scale touch and the uh, nasal scale does not touch this larger fused set of uh, labial scales. Interesting, interesting. This is, uh, we're gonna have a quick look here. They did some uh, pretty uh, fantastic uh, uh, phylogenies here as well. You can um, see Ijime right here. 
in the uh, ND4 maximum clade credibility tree. Um, you've got Izume, which is the uh, Japanese species, and this new species all the way up over here, quite separate from uh, Annulitis um, over here in the Coral Sea and Timor Sea, which you can see group into two different species. Now, uh, I believe this ND4 was a little bit incomplete. And then this is the maximum likelihood tree from nuclear. Was this from nuclear data that they did? Either way, you can see that there's um, a new species down here. Again, fairly separate from uh, Annulatus over here as well, right? And fairly well supported in, 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 in this phylogeny, 100%. So yeah, they um, you know, did a fantastic... I, I just generally love these, uh, these very simple scalation drawings of snakeheads. And they're just always good to look at. All right, just uh, here we go. Just having a look here, we can see our new species over here, and then over here, and then Annulatus, and Timor Sea, and Izume down here on the bottom right. So if you're looking at there, at that, um, that animal from in, in C, that's a male. So you can see what I was talking about with that Russell horn projection there on the end of the, on the, end of the snout there. Right. So that's, uh, that's only in the males, and, and, and the females is just kind of that little downturned rostral scale. Yeah, correct. So the males are always horny. <laughs> I'm a dad, mate. You've got to have dad jokes every now and then. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, look, let's uh, let's move on to our next paper here. Hang on, hang on. Before you do, there is something that I want to touch on just with this. The nomenclature is is interesting on this one as well. The, it, there's a paper that's sitting before uh, the ICZN, yeah, ICZN, which is the international. Uh, Commission for Zoological Nomenclature by Kaiser et al. with regards to uh, some cobras in Africa. The animals were named by uh, through conventional methods, I suppose, if you will. And then there's also been a, a private person that's gone gone ahead and published the names. A lot of places are choosing not to to recognise those names for for whatever reason it is, whether it be politics or whatever. Um, it's not for us to to comment on that. Interestingly enough, this the same holotype that was used in this paper uh, that describes Oriaris is also the same holotype for an animal that was described, Zemidecephalus teasy, that was described four years, three or four years earlier. Obviously, they've gone ahead and they've they've published this on the basis of their, their research and their genetics that that, that they've worked on. So. Until such time that the ICZN rule on the validity of, of uh, the earlier publication, the the name might have might be seen as two different names in, in publication going forward. But uh, you know, again, not for us to comment on the validity of it. We just need to wait on the the ICZN to to solve or solve, and and we can sort of move on with our lives going forward with that controversy in the world of reptile taxonomy would you believe it or uh, uh <laughs> it's, it's not always as clear-cut as as we would like it to be yeah i think mate if, as long as the sun comes up tomorrow there's going to be people arguing about taxonomy so you know nothing nothing changes nothing's new <laughs> well look um either way it's it's good to see the uh, genetic work backing it up it's good to see all the morphology and everything put together and um in an in a nice package like that as well kind of uh putting putting all of the supporting evidence together into a, a kind of a really convincing um convincing bit yeah and, and obviously too they show that there's um some more work to happen as well within this group so you know yeah particularly some of those uh vietnamese uh uh and uh northern samples right there was uh some some sampling that were that would really really 
kind of uh, help yeah. exp expand on what they've, they've done? There was a paper that uh, with some of those uh, Southeast Asian animals that they haven't had a name assigned to them. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but there, there was a name that was was given to those by some workers out of, I think, out of Europe, I think, from memory. Where they're at with that, I'm not quite sure, but obviously they've regarded them as, as CF annulatus at the moment. So they're suggesting that they might be different, but they might need a little bit more work to sort of sort out what the hell's going on out there. Yeah, right. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, oh, and was this was this the one with the, uh, the the tiger snake reference in it? I cannot remember. Let me have a look. I do have to try and find this because I believe there was a tiger snake reference in this paper. Somewhere in the methods. I'm going to have to dig through. Bear with me. Oh, yes. I know what you thought. Oh, was it? No, I thought that was in the next paper. Uh, I'm pretty sure because uh, let's have a look. Oh, no, here we go. No, it is there. Uh, on page 143. 143. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just got it, yeah. There it is. Yeah, right, these enzymes. So they're talking about the uh, enzymes that they used for their RADSEC. So RADSEC is a reduced uh, representation library um, genetic uh, sequencing method, and uh, you use restriction enzymes, uh, in this case, uh, PST1 and uh, HPA1, um, which are added to the samples to break it up, and then you add uh, molecular identifiers and, and ligators on that. and um, yeah, you kind of sequence it wherever the restriction enzyme cuts up the genome. Um, and uh, they used uh, these two uh, enzymes. Uh, these enzymes, I oh, just reading from the paper, these enzymes were selected as they have proven informative for population genetics and phylogenetic analyses in the terrestrial lapid tiger snake, Nitecus scatatus, in Vicky Thompson. Unpublished data. Unpublished data. There's unpublished tiger snake data. Scott, there's unpublished tiger snake data. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me, mate. <laughs> you're, you're not as excited about unpublished tiger snake genetics as I am. Yeah, look, I'm sure there's going to be some interesting things going out there. I suppose the question is, is whether they're going to sink them or they're going to add to them, I suppose. But they do show rapid morphological change in tiger snakes. So, you know, it, who knows what's going on there, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a, a lot of like a insular island dwarfism and... Um... Yeah, weird. And gigantism, gigantism as well. Gigantism as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So very interesting. Vicky Thompson, publish your tiger snake genetics. We're waiting for it. All right, moving on. What else have we got? Underwater hearing in sea snakes. Oh, that's right. Chapui et al. Oh, yeah, look, there it is. Um, so this is uh, from underwater hearing in sea snakes, hydrophene, first evidence of auditory evoked potential thresholds uh, in the Journal of Experimental Biology 2019. This is by uh, Shapui et al. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So reading straight from the abstract here, uh, the viviparous sea snakes are a secondarily aquatic radiation of more than 60 species that possess many phenotypic adaptations to marine life. However, virtually nothing is known of the role or and sensitivity of hearing in sea snakes. This study investigated the hearing sensitivity of fully marine of the fully marine sea snake Hydrophis stokesii by measuring auditory evoked potential audiograms for two individuals. AEPs were recorded from 40 hertz, the lowest frequency tested, up to 600 hertz with a peak in sensitivity identified at 60 hertz. Our data suggests that sea snakes are sensitive to low frequency sounds, but have relatively low sensitivity compared with bony fishes and marine turtles. Additionally, studies are required to understand the role of sound in sea snake life history and further assess these species' vulnerability to anthropogenic noise. Fascinating stuff. So um, I guess uh, first and foremost, we generally think of snakes as not really having any hearing, right? Yeah. So previously in, in demonstrations and stuff like that, I'd always referred to them as 
as snakes being deaf. This paper quite clearly shows that they are not deaf. They don't have the same range of hearing that we do, but they definitely do have some uh, some auditory perception. And on top of that, there does seem to be some reaction to that uh, that auditory perception as well. So I, I suppose that, you know, I, I like to make sure that whenever I'm delivering a presentation, I think it's a key thing for anyone delivering presentation is that they that they are accurate in what they say. And so you can use words to to downplay their sensitivity of their hearing, but you don't want to say that something is deaf when quite clearly they may not be. Right. I mean, we, we kind of think of, of hearing in, in selfish terms, right? Like when it comes to reptiles, uh, the human mammalian inner ear is, is pretty amazing and complicated. And part of uh, one of the bones of the uh, anvil stirrup mechanism uh, of the inner ear is in reptiles, part of the, the jaw hinge mechanism. It's the, the quadrate bone, right? Yeah. Um, so in that, one of the things that allows snakes to open their jaw that wide in mammals has migrated, it's shrunk down and become its part of the uh, transmission system of the inner ear. So because they're lacking that sophisticated of an inner ear, we go, oh, they must be deaf. But there's always uh, kind of been this idea, and, and I guess tell me how much credence do you give to this, of like the idea that if a sound wave hit the entire body of a snake, they might be able to pick it up, like using their entire body as kind of a, a, you know, a percussive surface, kind of like the tympanum of a of, of an ear itself. So it's like they are the eardrum. Yeah, and I suppose this is where you know we were looking at the the immunocephalus in the paper before that's got those very small apical pits all over the over the head of the snake. Certainly in the Pseudophorania polylepis, the the Maclay's water snakes that we used to keep here, that they would react from a pressure sensitivity uh, when you vibrate prey within the water near the snake and that would elicit a strike and then the, the snake would eat its fish. So, you know, they, they certainly do pick up on, on pressure waves. Whether that pressure wave causes a feed response like in, in Shidophorania um, or whether it's potentially a, a something that would scare an animal away or, or something like that, it, it remains to be seen. You see people have got those those vibrators in their um, in their gardens to, to try and prevent snakes from coming in there. I don't think snakes respond negatively to that sort of vibration. Um, we wouldn't see snakes hit on the roads by trucks and stuff like that if they were scared of that sort of type of vibrational noise. Um, however, in in the ocean, as this paper sort of talks about, the drilling processes and those sorts of things might actually be a cause of reduction or displacement in in these animals. Yeah, right. It's, it's it's interesting to think of them maybe being affected by you know seismic activity or um, seismic testing or you know uh, underwater audio testing uh, the same way that um, maybe some of our larger cetaceans might be. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm just going to share my screen uh, just so we can see this just so we know what we're talking about in this particular animal here. This is Hydrophus stokesii. Doing what Hydrophus stokesii does, this is a, a fantastic image from Clay Bryce. It's an image that we've used in our uh, in our book 
on on the snakes of Australia. It's so uh, Hydrophis stokesi, yeah, Stokes sea snake for uh, for uh, the common name. Correct. And so one of the things that these guys mainly eat is they eat these sort of benthic fishes, things like stonefish and frogfish and stuff like that. And that's probably the reasons why they're such a heavily bodied taxon. So this uh, this stokes here has come to the surface and it's eating what appears to be a frogfish. So yeah, pretty pretty awesome image. So now you've got that image of the the Stokes sea snake. I suppose we can keep talking about uh, uh, this uh, paper, mate, and then I'll I'll type, stop sharing screen in a second and bring up that figure that we need to talk about. Uh, b- before we do, do you, uh, can we can we quickly jump back? Because I know you have pictures of the tiger snake and dew guide as well um, for for our audience. Just uh, just from the last uh, from. Um uh damien's paper yeah i can do that give me one second. so uh the um the wa tiger snakes uh, they they look a, a little bit different from um uh i guess the ones that i'm at least more familiar with in victoria yeah the the the, uh, the wa tigers um uh they look like they've been hit by every rung on the ugly stick on the way down uh, <laughs> i can say that because i keep wa tigers um this 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 animal here is a a typical WA tiger. I would I would struggle to call that ugly. That's a stunning animal to me. Oh, I, I suppose it's just they've a lot of the wild animals have got very high parasite loads and, and stuff like that. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it obviously looks like it could use a an extra feed if it was a, a captive animal for sure. But. Um, uh, I mean, what what wild animal doesn't look like that? Yeah, I mean that's a uh, here's a that's a, a captive animal there. There it is, and it's uh, defensive glory there. So basically, wanting me to go away. So that's the WA tiger, uh, and we were talking about dugots before as well. Um, guys, I have to bear with me. I've got about twenty three thousand images. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult finding what I'm after. I think there's a uh, there's there's a few uh, uh, herpetological nerds out there who who would who would be happy to just do a podcast cruising through your photo collection. I think that would work just fine. <laughs> there's a few interesting things in there. So that's a light one. Yeah, wow! Look at the head on that thing. That's amazing. Yeah. So that it is a characteristic of a lot of the dugouts that they have this spotting here that you can see, which is also gives them the name the spotted brown snake that some people have used. So yeah, they get they can get quite large and. And they can be quite defensive, like normal brown snakes, I suppose. All right, cool. Well, look, uh, let's get back to this paper for a moment, if you don't mind. We'll get back in here because uh, the uh, aside from a lot of other things uh, that was great about this paper, I just loved uh, their uh, experimental setup. It it, it is something uh, that uh, is is always nice to see some of these uh, uh, you know zoological experimental setups. Um, and and this one was a cracker, I reckon. So obviously they 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 want to uh, test uh, the uh, AEPs the uh, uh, auditory evoked potentials of uh, of, uh, of snakes. So you've got them in a in a sealed chamber in a inside a uh, a wooden box uh, with a speaker attached, and they're uh, anesthetized in, in a cradle with um, some uh, electrodes inside them to look at their uh, electrical potentials, uh, evoked electrical potentials in response to. Uh, if you can see this big bass speaker down here at the bottom, and it's uh, sitting on a, a nice big bit of rubber to minimize uh, even the ground vibration kind of going up into there. So yeah, that's <laughs> that's their uh, amazing experimental setup. Um, I love that diagram. It's fantastic. I especially love the the car tire that they use to to sit it on. <laughs> Get it all right, and they go right. We'll we'll sit it on a car tire to stop 
stop vibration. But at the same time, you know, the, the simplicity of it is is great too. Yeah, uh, and look, that's uh, that's uh, sometimes the best. Sim- simplicity is uh, a lot of the time the way to go. Why uh, overcomplicate something? But uh, yeah, snake in a box with a speaker and a, some some cables. Uh, yeah, very cool. So uh, let's just uh, scroll down here very quickly to the end of their discussion. In this study, we showed that the sea snake hydrophobic CR can detect underwater sounds of low frequency with a relatively low sensitivity compared to other aquatic vertebrates. So still relatively low compared to, let's say, fish or um, yeah, even, uh, I guess, uh, you know, some of the other... uh, cetaceans cetaceans mammals and things like that yeah to further assess the acoustic ecology of sea snakes more studies are required to discriminate whether sea snakes are primarily responsive to sound pressure or particle motion as sea snakes are ecologically very diverse it will be crucial uh, critical to explore the auditory sensitivity of other sea snake species and to examine the hearing abilities of sea snakes at different life stages to assess the potential influence of anthropogenic noise on sea snake persistence further work should focus on assessing the individual and population level responses of these animals to noise and the effect of noise on critical behaviors mating feeding and anti-predator behavior physiology such as auditory threshold shift and anatomy such as uh, scale mechanoreceptors uh, inner ear and lung damage uh, the idea of lung damage from like percussive noise yeah that's a uh, that's just uh, insane to think about but uh, I, I I guess it, it must happen on a fairly regular basis it's quite scary um they're, they're, there's a place off the the northwest coast of Western Australia called Ashmore Reef and and it had not only did it have some of the, the highest diversities in, in diversity of species uh, in Western Australia, but it also had quite massive numbers as well. I've, I've spoken to, to Hal Cogger about uh, some of his initial collecting in the in the 60s out on Ashmore and the, the sheer numbers of, of sea snakes over there. And, the, you know, you basically go there at low tide and you flip over pieces of coral and you'd, things like, you'd find things like, Apiocerus, Apifrontalis, and and Foliosquama and stuff like that. You go there, they started seeing much reduced numbers in the 80s uh, and 90s, and and now subsequent investigations over there have have not detected some of these taxons in in about 20 years. Now, they're not sure why those sea snakes aren't there anymore, but uh, the suggestion of, of noise and fishing with dynamite and all that sort of stuff is is potentially one of the issues. I mean, Ashmore Reef is right on the right on the edge of the Australian Territory. Uh, and so, you know, potentially some of the impacts in international waters and, and Indonesia, uh, Indonesian fishing vessels and stuff like that um, could be causing causing issues for our wildlife, I suppose. And the, you know, this is just maybe a potentially another another piece in the puzzle. Yeah, um, I was, it was definitely interesting to, you know, uh, I think one of the points that they made there at the end was uh, as well the trophic and, uh, I guess, ecological diversity of sea snakes. There's probably going to be some that would not be massively affected by anthropogenic noise, but considering their diversity, uh, like it's almost certain that there would be some that would, like if there is a range of sensitivity in these animals then with the amount of diversity that they show, it seems like something is going to stick. They, they have quite a, quite a wide range of prey and quite a, a wide range of habitats that they use, whether it's the seagrass meadows or the coral reefs or the open ocean ones like the um, pelagic uh, yellow-bellied sea snake. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, 
such a diverse group and, and they have so many different types of life histories that it's quite likely that some of them are going to be at risk. Well, I mean, I mean the other thing too to remember is, it's, you know, we, we think of vision being a, a primary sense and we think of vision being a one of the, the more significant senses for snakes, obviously, along with a with, uh, sense of taste or smell. In an aquatic uh, habitat, particularly something that's got very turbid water, such as an estuary or something like that, um, vision's not going to be very effective. So, you know, if you remove one of those sensors uh, essentially from something, then it's well known that you see the other sensors increase uh, to compensate for it, so to speak. So potentially that could be another issue that we're, we're, we're seeing here that, you know, that the sea snakes have actually got a elevated level of sound sensitivity compared to, to other elapids and, that to me would actually be a really interesting point to, to check to see uh, the aquatic sea snakes are essentially aquatic elapids. Um, it would be very interesting to test some of the Australian elapids for their sensitivity to, to auditory stimulation, so to speak. Um, maybe there is something to it and maybe that, you know, you do need to be quiet when you go hunting tiger snakes or Gigites or something like that. Maybe that was the factor why they they cannot necessarily find them every time. You know, maybe there's noise that that plays a part, and we're just not picking up on it at the moment. Is we're assuming that they they can't hear us. Yeah, quite possibly. And um, you know, maybe we're just coming across the more bold ones, the ones that don't run away, but they still do hear us, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. All right, let's uh, move on here onto our next, and uh, obviously going to uh we're going through quite a few here so we're only going to touch on uh, on some of these uh such as this one from uh zoo systematics and evolution uh a new species of green pit viper of the genus trimacerus lacepita 1804 reptilia serpentis vaporidae from uh western arunkal pradesh india uh this is by mirza et al largely we uh we uh pick this animal because uh it's got a cool name um, a new species of green pit viper of, uh, of the genus Trimacerus uh, is described from the lowlands of western Orankal Pradesh, uh, state of India. The new species Trimacerus salazar is a member of the genus Trimacerus uh, relationship deduced contingent on two mitochondrial genes, uh, 16S and ND4, and recovered as sister to Trimacerus septotentrialis. Uh, septen- sorry, septentrialis. The new species differs from the latter in bearing an orange to reddish stripe running from the lower border of the eye to the posterior part of the head in males, high number of pterygoid and dentary teeth, and a short bilobed hemipenes. Uh, description of the new species and uh, TR... Aruncalensis uh, from northeastern India in a span of less than one year highlights the need for dedicated surveys to document biodiversity across northeastern India. So Trimacerus salazar, um, for the uh, nerdier people out there, this is actually named after Salazar Slytherin, the um, one of the co-founders of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and uh, the uh, namesake of uh, the uh, Slytherin School of, uh, of Witchcraft. Let's, uh, let's have a look at this thing. It, it, it is quite a beautiful, uh, like all the Trimacerus, uh, fairly beautiful animals, right? Yeah, they're, they're pretty snakes. It's a pretty horrible name, but... <laughs> yeah. you're, not, you're not down for the Slytherin name? Oh, look, there's, there's a whole heap of other names you probably could have given it, but, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, mate, you know, I suppose there is one thing about it is that it's been picked up by a lot of the news outlets and it's been picked up by a lot of places simply because it's named after a uh, a entity within Harry Potter, I suppose. 
interesting etymology that you're uh, essentially a patronym uh, after a non-existent being. <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a it's a very interesting thing. So well, yeah. Look, let, let's actually read the uh, the etymology because they, they they have it here somewhere. That's actually a great shot of it, though. Look at that. Pretty cool animal. Yeah, that's a juvenile animal there from 2008. Yeah. You see how it's got that red tail. That red tail is probably indicative of, of corn luring when they're younger. Right. So like our death adders, it probably uses that to wiggle around near its head and, and have uh, prey animals run towards its face. Yeah, they, they do wiggle that around and that, that uh, is potentially to, to help them get geckos and, and small small uh, lizards. Very cool. Very cool. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Um, let's, uh, let's see if we can find this etymology here because it was uh, really good. Uh, the specific epithet is a noun in apposition for J.K. Rowling's fictional Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry's co-founder, Salazar Slytherin. He was a parcel mouth that links him to serpents. Uh, suggested common name, Salazar's Pit Viper. So there we go. Salazar's Pit Viper. They've, uh, yeah, they've named a snake after uh, a, a Harry Potter um, uh, founding hogwarts character which which you know i i i think is pretty cool uh interesting um i think the reason that they named it this aside from whether or not it's a cool thing or not i i don't like the idea of it myself but that's i didn't i didn't name it so hey the the thing that i i think that one of the benefits has is that it has been picked up by these news outlets and so by being picked up by these news outlets it gets people interested in the work that these guys have done collectively as a group and potentially might help them with funding some of their other work that is out there. I mean, you know, they, they described um, a lot of the same, same crew described that, um, uh, that, that other Trimasurus from there. Uh, and it hasn't had anywhere near the notoriety that, that this thing has had. So the fact that that thing was brown and was spotty and wasn't quite emerald green like this thing is, and um, and didn't get this name that's nice and easy to pronounce and all the rest of it. Then, you know, maybe maybe that's why it was uh, it's been picked up the way it has. So. Look, I, I guess in the end, anything that kind of helps uh, biodiversity sciences get a little bit more um, shine, a bit a, a bit more uh, attention. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing. I guess while we, while we are here looking at the uh, phylogeny here uh, for for some of the genetics nodes, you might see some pretty uh, lowly supported nodes here at the base of uh, of the uh, uh, Salazar tree, uh, where uh, Septentrio uh, Septentrionalis and uh, Fasciolitis and Insulitis break off. There's actually some pretty low support values, and uh, yeah, I was concerned about that as well. But this is all couched in uh, Melorda and Thorpe's. Uh, phylogenies uh, here you can see in the discussion in uh, 2000 and 2004 which are very very complete for the trimasurus and uh, actually have really really good support values and while this tree doesn't have the great support values it shows uh, similar topologies so um, it's not like uh, branching away in different directions from uh, what the more supported stuff by um, by Thorpe and uh, and co um, are showing which is uh, which is nice. Did they only use mitochondrial DNA in this? I do not recall. Uh, I think it was ND4. I think they probably used two mitochondrial genes. Let me uh, let me scroll on up. Scroll on up. Molecular analysis, genomic DNA, isolated, 16s RNA, mitochondrial uh, subunit four, um, ND4 and 16s. So yeah, two mitochondrial genes. The other thing that was really cool about this paper was the uh, micro CT scanned of the skull yeah fantastic right there you go look at those yeah great to see right 
All right, and we have one more to touch on. I know it's uh, I know it's been a long one. I know we're both tired, <laughs> <laughs> especially after our technical issues today as well. Oh yeah, so many, so many. <laughs> All right, and moving on on to uh, this uh, latest one, um, which is uh, a very recent one, uh, 2020, ran uh, PRJ additions to the uh, phylogeny of colubrine snakes in Southwestern Asia with description of a new genus and species. Uh, this is by Raja Bizadeh. Raja Bizadeh, I'm totally butchering that, just like I always do. Um, reptiles are still being described worldwide at a pace of hundreds of species a year, while many discoveries are from remote tropical areas, biodiverse, arid regions still high but many novel taxa. Here we present an updated phylogeny of colubrid snakes from the Western uh, Paleoarctic by reanalyzing a super matrix of all available global snake species with molecular data and report on the discovery of a new genus and species of colubrid snakes from southeastern Iran. The new taxon named Persiophis fahimai, genre of, species of, is uh, nested within a clade containing Middle Eastern and Southeast Asia, uh, South Asian ground races uh, such as uh, Litorhynchus, uh, Rhynchococlamus, uh, Wallaceophis, and Wallophis. Uh, this species has a derived morphology including an endentulous pterygoid. What does endentulous mean? Uh, Edentulous, so missing teeth. Edentulous pterygoid, so no teeth on the pterygoid bone. Um, and occurrence of short and blunt teeth on the palatine, maxillae, and dentary bones. Uh, an elongated snout and a relatively trihedral first supralabial scale that is slightly bigger than the second and elongated towards the tip of rostral. We also report on the osteology and phylogenetic placement of several poorly uh, studied colubrines, uh, Hyrophus andrianus, reassigned to Dolichophus and Mutarophus baroni. Um, so those last two species, um, they kind of reassign uh, Hyrophus uh, andrianus um, to yeah a different genus. But the most interesting part here um, is definitely uh, Perseophis uh, fahimai, um, which uh, I believe they discovered in like 2000. It's, it's fahimi-i. Fahimi-i, fahimi-i, of course. Fahimi-i, because it's a double I, you've got the E. Double I, yes. E-I. Um, yes, indeed. Um, I believe they um, picked up the first uh, specimens in like 2000 and, uh, 2006, 2000, 2008. Yeah, there we go. Specimen of color, uh, superficially resembling snakes of the gena, genus of the genre Rhynchocalamus or Litorhynchus. Um, batch of specimens were preserved and deposited at the International Center for Science, High Technology, Iran, and uh, tissue samples uh, were collected for molecular phylogenetic analysis. Uh, so these, they kind of uh, jammed into, um, uh, for, uh, for a lot of snake nerds, uh, you guys will know Pyron's paper or uh, uh, Figuerera's paper here uh, as well. Uh, Pyron did the super matrix of pretty much all extant squamates, right? So they had this big, massive mitochondrial, uh, massive genetic tree of uh, a lot of genes of all of the squamates. Figueroa here uh, is, I believe, a... Similar approach, and I believe worked along with the side with Pyron, um, who did the supermetrics of squamates, and this one was specifically for serpentates, so for snakes only. And uh, they've used that supermetrics, which you can kind of see here in this paper. Uh, they also did some very cool osteology, by the way, in this paper. Very cool. But here on the left, that is the giant supermatrix of snakes, right? This whole thing here, which you can't even see the taxon any anymore because of... All right, look at that thing. It's massive. And then you take this tiny segment of it and you kind of get these uh, 
uh, West Paleoarctic Asian colubrids right here. So that little highlighted segment that you can kind of see at the middle of the page, that's what we're seeing there in B. What needs to be noted with Pyron's stuff and, and, and this, this super matrix tree is that not every taxa, not every species has, has been put into this. It's only the ones that they've had samples for. So there is, when you look at the Australasian or rapid radiation that sits within uh, within this paper, there's, there's probably about 70-odd species that, that haven't been uh, included into it. So, you know, you've, you've got much lower values. So, I mean, that you don't have the diversity. It's, it's fantastic. There's a lot there, but, but there's a lot of missing taxa in there as well. And then not only does that need to be taken into consideration, but on top of that as well is that how many animals have been sequenced in that? Is it, are we talking one, two, three, four, five uh, animals from a particular taxa? Or are we only looking at the, you know, in if we look at this particular tree, what they're looking at at the moment, towards the top, you've got three instances of Lytorhynchus diadema uh, in there. So you've got, you know, did they only look at three? And you've got quite deep nodes there with within that group um, that's potentially showing that there maybe there could be some uh, some variation within diadema as well. Well, yeah, there's, there, there definitely is, but I know for a fact that they only had one Perseophis fahemii because that's all they found. That's all that's ever been found. Yep. Yeah, it's described. It's, it's only described from a single taxon. Yeah, and they've uh, they've been back looking for it multiple times, and uh, they have not found it. So um, while uh, uh, and you can see from the branching, uh, it is it does split off very early. It is very divergent from the the rest of them. But you know, the, there could be plenty of intervening genre in there that is still yet to be discovered as well. This could be very very incomplete. That being said, very very divergent. How how much overlap there is in any of those genetic characters, we you know, we might not know until we get a, a fully complete tree once we uh we find some more species who, who knows how many more there is out there to find right oh most definitely and i suppose the point that i was trying to make is that not very effectively um is that you know in the case of uh, there's plenty of taxa out there that are currently sitting lumped um within a single taxon and you know a lot of the blind snakes is a, that's a a great example of that uh, something like Anilios botuberculatus or uh, Anilios guntheri or gripus are species that are most likely to be species complexes. And so if you placed those into the tree and you're only looking at one example of, of gripus or botuberculatus or guntheri, um, then where they sit within the tree is fine for the animal that's been sampled, but that may not be the case for all of the guntheris or all of the gripus or all of the or tuberculitis. Right, right. Well, yeah, it, it is always hard to capture that kind of uh, amount of diversity for, for phylogenetics from just one sample. But um, sometimes you, that's all you got to work with. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a pretty incredible sort of um, West Iranian colubrid. That, um, the one thing that was of note there to me was that, uh, I think there's a photo of it, is the... That supralabial scale, that first supralabial. Yeah, I'm pulling it up. That's a really unusual feature to have that enlarged supralabial, first supralabial. Um, you'll see there that, that... Oh, that one right like towards the tip of the snout? Yeah, so usually this first supralabial is smaller than the second and third. And so to have that 
um, that supralabial there being so long is, is quite unusual. Very pointed note. I wonder if these things go into crevices. Yeah, yeah, very elongate, maybe like even uh, dorsally, dorsolaterally uh, compressed sort of head. But the, uh, the body doesn't seem to be quite so flattened. So it looks like a, a big-eyed, narrow-snouted uh, snouted thing, so, but it doesn't seem to have really sharp teeth. So who knows what it's eating? That's uh, that's that's the uh, weird part. No teeth on the uh, pterygoid bone, but uh, and and small, blunt little teeth, right? So the so the one thing that, that the one one group of snakes that don't have teeth essentially is is Dasypeltus, the egg eating snake. So this having that elongated snout and elongated body, um, can you just go down to that CT scan again? It'd be really interesting to see a CT scan of the the whole body and see if the if there's any projections on the base of the ribs, because um, this may be an animal that tends to eat reptile eggs as opposed to um, I don't think it's eating bird eggs, but it might be a reptile egg eater. And I guess it's got some it's got some very weird sort of skull morphology. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, can you see uh, figure D there at the bottom uh, with the sagittal view of the skull? Yeah, kind of see some. Um, are those ribs down there along the, the edge, or is that? They just look like the articulations off the the bottom of the off the, the yeah off the vertebrate of the rib. So when you look at a dazzy peltus, um, they've they've actually got projections off the bottom of the uh, off the bottom of the spinal. Right, column. that helped them kind of like crank their neck once they've got the egg in their throat. Yeah, and they they then rupture the egg. that's what cracks the egg. Right, interesting. So. Some of the other egg-eating colubrids have got long teeth that sort of slash the egg open, um, and that's how they get it down. So who knows? This maybe it's eating insect eggs or something like that. It's, it's a very <laughs> well. Look, there's uh, we've we've already had a look at a, a fish egg eating sea snake tonight. So well, I, I suppose the the point that I make is that if you you go up a little bit, you've got that dentition shot um, or the lack thereof, I suppose. It would not look like that would be a very effective grab for that snake to to hold onto a lizard in that jaw. No, no, definitely not. Um, do do we have another good CT somewhere? With uh, these guys had the metacephalus. Uh, did they do a CT here as well for us to look at teeth? I don't think there was a. I don't think they had one of them. Uh, this one did. Here we go. So something with actual teeth, the trimasurus. So let's have a look at the CT here. Yeah, so that trimasurus, you can see that. Uh, how elongated those uh, those teeth are for helping hold their prey. Obviously, they've got the, those two big fangs that uh, can articulate. Interesting, that animal's actually got two fangs on the right side there as well. Yeah, it's got a double set. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it's you know they obviously as they um, because those fangs are so important. As one drops away, you've got another one there that's ready. You want to have a backup, yeah. But yeah, compare that to uh, to the uh, level of dentition here on uh, on Mister Gummy. On the uh, Perseophis, Bohemia. Yeah, it would have been nice. I could have called it the gummy snake. Gummy. <laughs> we, you don't you don't have any uh, any other Harry Potter references you want to throw at this one? No, mate, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no not at all. Uh, um, all right. Very, very cool snake though. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well look, I think uh, I think that's pretty much we all, all all we have for now. Um did you have uh, did you have any other notes that you uh, wanted to chat about or uh, that's pretty much it? for our first uh, set of these quarantines. Uh, no, mate, that's it. I think we got there in the end. This is our second crack at this. So 
<laughs> second second crack at an actual podcast and maybe uh what 20 30 uh test recordings to try to get this <laughs> this whole uh, circus this whole uh yeah this whole goat rodeo um yeah functional well we had a bit of fun with it anyway so that's not the end of the world yeah well no i'm glad you had fun man um i, I certainly did i'm glad we had to go uh, got to talk uh, a bunch of topics today we actually covered quite a lot so man i had a great time um i hope you did as well uh everybody you can uh check out nature for you at wildlife demonstrations.com or uh, on facebook at wildlife demonstrations where else can people catch you um oh look honestly they can jump easiest way to get me at the moment is through the website we've got a We've got three books there at the moment that we're we're happy to move on. We can the latest. move them on to yes, these ones, those ones. Um, so so yeah, get onto it, get the books. Yep, that's all of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, we're working on other ones as well, but uh, but yeah, look, get on it, buy the books, it helps support the authors. Is always nice. All right, man. Well, look, thanks again, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. I hope you and Ty are surviving the quarantine well. Um, I'm sure once it's over, we'll, um, we'll actually have a proper catch up at some point, but um, appreciate your time anyway. And uh, yeah, much, uh, much love to everybody over there on the South side. No worries. Happy days, mate. Enjoy yourself up there. All right, man. Will do. Thank you very much, man. See ya, bye. And that has been Scott Iper. Thank you again to uh, Scott and uh, the folks at Nature for You for joining us. Um, and uh, thanks again to uh, my uh, intrepid producer Christian for helping me get this uh, this uh, yeah rambly show um, up and rolling. Uh, we'll be back back with uh, plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails, uh, quarantines, um, and uh, new episodes uh, in the future. Keep your eye out. Check us out on uh, wild, uh, Instagram, uh, wildlife cake and cocktails on uh, Twitter on Facebook, all the other platforms. You can find us at Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and much more uh, wherever you find great podcasts. And we'll be back very soon to talk some more wildlife science. Cheers, guys. Cheers.